You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Psalm 30, beginning in verse 1. The psalmist says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have helped me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Uh, Would you uh, pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Uh, God, I ask that you would come now, fill uh, this place with your presence. Uh, Fill this place with your spirit. Uh, Lord, anything that uh, any of us walked in here with that would seek to distract us, or to hinder us uh, from hearing from you, God, I pray that you would remove that. Lord, you're powerful enough to leave the tomb empty, to move a stone away from that tomb and to bring body back to life. Lord, you breathe life into dead hearts and you cause dead stones to praise you. So God, anything that, that came in with us this morning attached to us, um, that would seek to hinder us from hearing your voice, your life-giving voice, your encouraging voice, your strengthening voice, your, your rebuking voice even, God. I ask that you would remove that and help us to, to hear from you, to be transformed in your presence as you speak through the preaching of your word. I pray, God, that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth. I pray, God, that you would remove anything uh, from me that would, would cause any distraction from us hearing from you. Lord, we trust you to do this work in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Hey, it's good to be back with you guys uh, once again. It was fun to be back here last week to dive into Psalm 29 with you and uh, just to dig in and to receive from the richness of God's word, right? See, as I read Psalm 30, um, I kind of get a picture in my mind of somebody who is 
praising God, right? He's singing a praise song to God. Why is he singing a praise song to God, though? He's singing a praise song to God because he knows that God has delivered him. He knows that God has shown his compassion to him in very powerful, visible ways. He knows that God has been his help, right? He's proclaiming that God has restored me. This is why the psalmist is, is praising God. This is why David writes this song. As I read it, as I study it, I get this, this deep sense that David knew like, deep down in his bones. He had experienced something deep down in his bones that was just overflowing in song. He, he, he had experienced something that he knew he didn't deserve. He knew that, that God had come and delivered him and had, had restored him so compassionately and so helpfully. And yet at the same time, I think that David knew, as I think all of us know, that we don't deserve this compassionate God to come and to deliver us and to restore us in this way. Nevertheless, this is what God does, right? This is what God does. God is in the business of of taking really messy, really broken people and doing what with them? He, he, He takes us and he restores our lives. And he does that as he delivers us from what? I mean, we sang about this earlier. As he restores and delivers us from our self inflicted graves. What, how it happens then? What, 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 what becomes the response of a person who has experienced true deliverance? What is that response that wells up in someone who has actually experienced true, authentic deliverance? What, what does a person do when they experience the full restoration that God offers in the cross and the, the empty tomb and the promise of heaven. And I think the easiest answer is exactly what we see in this psalm, right? A person who's been delivered by God, a person who's been restored by God, a person who has been helped by God, who has come face to face with the compassion of God in the person and the work of the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. This person has no other alternative than to what? To praise God. To praise God for who he is and for what he has done. So why do we praise God? Why do we praise him? What gives some kind of oomph to our praise? First, I think we see in the text that we we praise God for his deliverance, right? Praise God for his deliverance. And the overwhelming testimony of the scriptures is this, that God created us to be with him. He created us to be with him in perfect harmony forever. But what happened when sin entered the world through Adam and through Eve? It is as though all of creation at that point became infected with a, a sin sickness, you might say, that, that left every one of us, every, every one of humanity, rotting in the stench of their own self-inflicted graves, right? That's the story of what happened 
That's the ugliness of sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that the story doesn't stop there, right? God didn't just stand back and go, oh, look at you poor losers, you sinned, sucks to be you. (laughs) That's not the end of the story. The beauty of the gospel is that God in his kindness did what you and I, most of us in this room, I think, know God did. He, He reached down into those man made graves that we put ourselves in by our sin and by the power of his spirit as he reaches down into that pit what does he do he gives believers these brand new beating hearts right he gives you a brand new beating heart that can actually trust in him and that actually enables you to have the strength then to grab a hold of his arm as he pulls you up out of that pit of death that that self-made grave That's the picture that that David is painting in this psalm of what God does when he delivers a person. This is what it means to be delivered. This is the reason that, that David praises God in this psalm. Do you know what it's like to be delivered from the pit of your own making? Have you forgotten? Look at what David says again in verses 1 through 3. Listen to it now with that explanation in front of you. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes, my enemies, rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, or the place of death, the grave, you restored me to life. Now think about that. You restored me to life. Uh, who gets restored to life? People who are dead. Okay? It's, there's no in-between. Uh, the commentator I was reading, um, some of you who love this illustration, commentator I was reading um, used uh, the Princess Bride um, as the, uh, the illustration that there's no such thing as half-death. So you, if you love the Princess Bride, you remember that, that part of the story um, you know, where, where they show up at the, the dude's door and, 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 and they're like, he's dead, we need you to help us. And he listens to him, he's like, oh, he's not dead, he's only half dead. And then he gives him this big fat chocolate covered pill and he comes back to life. Yeah, uh, it's not that, okay? And so I, I love the way the commentator used that analogy and that illustration because it just fit. I think sometimes when we think about this idea of God delivering us back to life, we're like, well, I was actually only half dead in my sin. No, the scriptures say you're dead in your trespasses. And the word dead, do you know what that word means? You guys get an A. Stars on your chart in heaven. Yes, very good. You're tracking. Dead means dead, not half dead. Not only half dead, so you need a chocolate covered pill to get alive again. So he says, you restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. It was the idea that you once were dead, but God delivered you. So these verses, what the picture that these verses paint is a man who is praising God simply for his deliverance. Now, I don't know what God has delivered you from. And I don't know where you are right now in this moment desperately looking to God for deliverance from. But I know for every one of us in this room, if you have trusted in Jesus, then he has delivered you from something. And also in this moment, because we're not in heaven yet, you are desperately asking him, please deliver me from 
this. I don't know where you're at in those places, but here's what I do know. And I think my job and my privilege is to proclaim to you what I do know. I know that we serve a God who is a master deliverer. There is no sin bad enough. There is no suffering great enough. There are no circumstances scary enough that God cannot step into and deliver you from. That's the message of this song. And because of that truth, you and I, regardless of where we're at in those categories, whether it be sin, whether it be suffering, whether it be other circumstances, we can praise God because of his deliverance in our lives. See, God is the God who delivers his people from the power of Satan, sin, and death. Those enemies, those foes will not rejoice ultimately over you and I. In this life, this side of heaven, we will be touched by those enemies, but we will not be consumed. And that is something I can proclaim to you and encourage you to stand on as you praise him. You see, the cross and the empty tomb, that is all the proof that you and I need. It's all the proof that you and I need to be able to praise God as our great deliverer. Amen? Second, uh, second we, we praise God not only for his deliverance, but also for his compassion. I want you to think about God's compassion for a minute. When you think about God's compassion and you read this text, here's the image that you get. You get this picture that God is holy, right? A God is also slow to anger. How do you connect those two together? Oh, and then there's this other thing. God is eternally gracious. It's all three of those. And I think sometimes in our human minds, we kind of set all three of those, his holiness or his perfection, uh, the fact that he's slow to anger, and he's actually very, very patient. And this picture that he's eternally gracious, meaning that he has given us far more than we deserve, we see those as almost like they're contrasting or in competition with each other, but in reality, in the character of who God is, this is who he is. The fact that God is holy uh, reminds me that nobody, nobody who is imperfect can actually come into his presence, right? Because for an imperfect, sinful person to come into the presence of a perfect being would mean that the imperfect person gets swallowed up or burned up by the perfection of the person he's coming into contact with, right? You, it's mutually incompatible. If you have perfection, imperfection will always be swallowed up by, by, by that which is perfect. That's God's holiness. That's the picture. But the interesting thing is, this is where, again, God's compassionate character actually acts to temper the flame of God's holiness without diminishing his perfection. You see, the cross of Christ uh, provides this, this perfectly uh, gracious, uh, protective covering for you and I. So that you and I can then come into God's 
holy presence without being burned into an ash heap. This is, this is the picture of, of what it looks like when God's grace and mercy collide with his holiness and get all mixed up. You see, not only does God deliver his saints from their self-made graves, as we just studied, but he also provides a way into his presence so that you and I are not held at a distance. Like, yo, God, I see you up there on the mountain. I'm glad I belong to you. And he's like, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing, peon. It's not that kind of a picture. The picture is that God not only redeemed us and delivered us, but provided a way for us to be on that mountaintop with him. The good father that he is. That's his compassion. And that happens through the work of Jesus at the cross. This is why believers can encourage and challenge one another the same way that the psalmist does, same way David does. He kind of shifts gears in verses 4 and 5, and he begins to encourage other believers, right? What does he say? Look at it. He says, sing praises to the Lord, right? Like he's looking into the eyes of people that he knows and he loves, and he's like, hey, sing praises to the Lord, Michael. Sing praises to the Lord, Will and Jen. Sing praises to the Lord, Patrick, Kimmy. That's the sense as he's looking across the table at others and he's saying, Sing praises to the Lord, O oh, you his saints. And give thanks to his holy name. Why? Why would I want to praise this God? Why, why would I want to give thanks to this holy God? He answers the question. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor, his grace, is for a lifetime. God's grace never runs out. That's the funniest thing in my mind. Maybe it's not really funny, you know, like the old Goodfellas movie, Funny. It's not that kind of funny. It's, it boggles my mind. God's grace never has an end. You know, here's the thing. My, my patience has an end. Anybody else want to join me in that? Yes, my patience has an end. I get frustrated, get impatient. Uh, I always want to recast God in my own image and think that he's the same way that I am or think that somehow I've become so good that I'm just like him and therefore he must run out of patience. No, not true. God's grace is for a lifetime and his anger is but for this wee little moment. Oftentimes I want to flip it and I want God to run out of grace and I want his anger to last longer because, again, I think that's the sinful part of me. I recast God in my own image. And yet, David here is saying, no, you can praise God. You can praise God, you, his saints. You can give thanks to his name because his anger is short-lived. His grace lasts a lifetime. Eternal. The lifetime is the shorthand way of saying it's an eternal type of grace. The bucket never empties. There's never a point where you and I would be staying in God's presence and he's just like, you know, time ran out for you. My grace was not sufficient for you. My bucket of grace was empty. Now you get only angry wrath. If you trusted in Jesus this side of heaven, that, that kind of reality is not what you look forward to. The kind of reality you look forward to is coming into God's presence and, and his gracious, merciful presence is what you experience. And he says, hey, come here. 
welcome. You're my child. I saved you. I redeemed you. I delivered you. You belong to me. Right? It says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. We just sang this, which is really odd. I don't think our music team is paying attention to what I'm about to preach, and they don't have my notes. So always love when the Holy Spirit ties those things together. So once again, why do we praise God? We praise God because he's holy. We praise God because he's slow to anger. We praise God because he's eternally gracious, right? So, so, so what more proof would you and I need of God's compassion other than this perfect blend of his holiness, his patience, and his, his grace? When you take God's holiness, when you take God's patience, and you take God's grace, and you put it in a blender, and you blend it, like I do with really awesome salsa, what comes out is not really awesome salsa. What comes out is compassion. This is a picture of God's compassion all wrapped together. Is not the cross and the empty tomb of Christ enough for us when you think about this topic? Like where else must you and I look to see a powerful reminder of God's compassionate disposition towards us. <clears throat> when you think of the perfect blend of his holiness and his patience and his grace, where else would you look? Because here's the thing, at the cross, what did Jesus do? Jesus stood in my place, right? He, he bore the rightful punishment that belongs to me as God in his holiness satisfied his justice. That's what was taking place at the cross. I did not pay that penalty. Jesus did. And not only did God the Son bear my punishment, what else did he do? In those moments, he also extended. So as he was taking the punishment that belongs to me on that cross, he's also holding his hand out not in anger, like, look what I'm doing for you. Look how bad things suck for me. He held his hand out in grace, and he extended his perfection over me. He said, I'm going to take your penalty and your price and your punishment, and I'm going to give you my perfection so that you might come into the presence of my Father in, in that, you and I are enabled and motivated. If you've trusted in Jesus this morning, you are enabled to then praise God for his compassion. Thirdly, we praise God through our confession. Praise God through our confession. The thing about praising God is this. Praising God is not about singing really feel good, uh, pump you up, uh, contemporary sounding songs to some sky ferry out there in some far off land. That's not what praising God is about. Praising God really <clears throat> is a regular practice of verbalizing a confession of sin and faith. Let me say this once again. Because I think sometimes we hear like contemporary Christian music, and we go, oh, that would just be a great praise song. No, actually, it's really not. It's really just about you and all the good things. Anyways, God, <laughs> praising God, I think, 
really is wrapped around this regular practice of verbalizing a confession of faith and a confession of sin. See, I think that a praise song without a balance of, of a confession of sin and a confession of faith, I don't think it's a praise song at all. It might be a good song. It's not a praise song. And this is why David then, in this psalm, he praises God as he confesses his sin and confesses his faith. And you might say, where do you see that? Look at the text with me, verses 6 and 7. Listen to what he says under this concept of the confession of sin and faith being our praise song to God. He says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. What's he saying? He's saying, as for me, in my, pros my prosperity, I shall never be moved. I'm good. That's what he's saying. And he moves on. He says, by your favor, O Lord, this is a confession of faith. You made my mountain stand strong. And the third thing he says is, you hid your face and I was dismayed. So if you were to look at this confession, what you see David doing is he's verbalizing the fact that he had sinned against God when he had actually placed his trust in his own prosperity, or you could say his own ability. What does that result in? When you start thinking that you're at where you're at because of what you could do, that's called sin. That results in God then hiding his face from David. It results in, in, a, in a kind of a relational separation from God, if you will. But David doesn't stop with that confession of sin. He also confesses his faith in God as he verbalizes the fact, and he's doing this in a song, right? A praise song. He's verbalizing the fact that it is who? God. And God alone who establishes and strengthens a person's life, just like this image of a mountain that David uses that God not only created but also sustained. Is there a place of your life right now where you don't feel like a mountain? <coughs> where you don't feel strong? Or are you in a place where you feel like, no, man, I got this, I'm good. Like, really, I'm pretty good. I would just, I would think this, this text should, and I think is meant to challenge a bit of idolatry there where there needs to be a confession of true sin and a, and a confession of true faith. A confession that says, God, um, I know that you are the one who does sustain me. I'm not where I'm at because of myself. See, when we sing praises to God, what we ought to be caught up in uh, is not all of the things that he has done for us, although that is good, but it must be counterbalanced, I believe, by our own failures and our own wanderings in the midst of that because our, our failures and wanderings make God's activity towards us look so much better. So when we sing praises to God, I think we ought to be caught up in the heart-transforming rhythm of confessing our sins out loud and then confessing our faith even louder, right? Fourth, I notice... Uh, that we praise God because of his help. We praise God because of his help. Now, it always boggles my mind whenever I think about the fact that God is the helper of his enemies. Okay? 
boggles my mind to think that God would be the helper of his enemies. God actually helps those who rebel against him. He extends a helping hand to those who have made war against his very existence. I ask this question, why would he do this? Why would he do that? Why would he help his enemies? Why would God not choose to just wipe every one of his enemies out of existence instead? I mean, I'm pretty sure with recent events in the world, we all kind of understand this angsty, almost angry, frustrated feeling of like, hey, there's some really bad people out there that may be allowed to do some more bad things. Or why can't we just like wipe them out, right? And I think it's a legit question. I just think that might be the way we often approach God too. Like, why would he choose to be my helper uh, instead of just wiping me out? And why would God actually send his one and only son to help his enemies become family? It's, it's, it's nuts. And I think what David does in this psalm, in verses 8 through 10, is he answers that kind of a question. And I think when David answers it in these verses, he, he does it with a kind of a prophetic foresight. So it's not just that in this psalm, David is just looking right here, right now. He's also looking ahead. David often does this. He fulfills these, these offices almost, or these roles of a, of a prophet who looks ahead and a priest who also gives us kind of heart-caring words. But we also know David's a king, right? And so in, in David, we see these roles. He's really, what you could say is if you think about like prototypes, you know, if, if, you, if you were to build a prototype car, like this is going to be the kind of car I want, and here's the prototype, David's a prototype. And, and ultimate fulfillment of who David is is found in the person and work of who? Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you see perfection. You see Jesus is the perfect king, Jesus is the perfect prophet, Jesus is the perfect priest. And so what David is doing here in verses 8 through 10 is kind of looking ahead a bit. There is an argument to be made that the entire psalm looks ahead. There's some problems with that, but that's also very compelling. But I think for sure in verses 8 through 10, he's looking ahead. Listen to what he says. He says, to you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy, right? Look at verse 9. What profit is there in my death? Not profit like one who looks ahead. Profit like gain. What, what kind of gain would there be in my death if I go down to the pit? Who's going to gain from that? David says, will the dust praise you? Now he's asking these little sarcastic questions. They're actually rhetorical questions because they're meant to lead you to the right answer. Is the dust going to praise you? God, is it going to tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. The truth as you look at this is that God has actually helped me through his faithful mercy, right? That's how God helps us is through his faithful mercy. In his mercy, God has withheld the punishment that I rightly deserve for my sin and my rebellion against him. Agreed? Everybody say agreed. agreed. Okay. But why didn't he just wipe me out? You come back to that question again. Why, why didn't you just wipe me out? I mean, it would seem like a lot easier just to do that. I certainly would be a lot less costly. But, but when you think about that and you think about those answers and that question, 
um, there, there's a bit of an answer here. Because if my deliverance, my salvation, my redemption didn't cost God something, then how would he receive the praise that is rightly due to him as Savior? Who would he have saved? He just wiped everybody out. He'd save nobody except for his own skin, right? That's not the story we have. God does not receive praise from dead things. Although he can cause dead rocks to praise him. That's not his intention. God doesn't have dead things praise him that were never brought back to life. God receives praise because he's holy and just for sure. But God also receives praise because he restores life from death. And this is where I think in verse 9 you see a prophetic connection that kind of points forward maybe a thousand years or more. Okay? Because in verse 9, if you were to read that again, a better translation would say this. What will you gain from my blood if I go down to decay? Let me say this again and catch it. What will you gain from my blood if I go down to decay? In that translation, which I think is a more faithful translation, what does it remind you of? What will you gain from my blood if I go down to decay? See, when I think of that translation, I'm reminded that Jesus spilled every ounce of his blood to ransom, to redeem, to deliver, and to restore my life and your life, if you trusted in him, from that self-made grave that you and I had sinned ourselves into. Nothing would be gained from the spilled blood of Christ if he went down to decay, right? And furthermore, nothing would be gained from the spilled blood of Jesus if you and I were left to then rot in our sin-infected graves. And the beauty of the gospel is this. God has helped you and I, if you trust in him, up out of our graves through the person and the work of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. This is why we praise Him. We praise God because He didn't waste the blood of Jesus. We praise God because He has been our helper in the midst of the gospel. Now, the fifth thing that I think we see in the text, and it's the final thing, is that we praise God for His restoration. Now, the reality is the word restoration was in the first three verses. Um, David actually used that word. Um, but in this final portion, in the last couple of verses, it's almost as though he's somewhat repeating what he said at the first three verses. It almost acts like bookends. So it, it felt appropriate just to leave this concept of restoration till the very end because we dealt with deliverance first and dealt with restoration on the back end. So think about the process of restoration with me for a minute. Uh, the process of restoration is this process of taking something that is old and used and battered and torn and worn out and simply quite useless. 
you think about any of those words, do any of those words resonate with you? A little old, a little worn, a little tattered, a little, a little beaten up, times feeling a bit useless. I can identify with those words easily, uh, often, probably too often. The process of restoration is simply taking items, or in this case, people who are in those places, and then transforming them into something new, something shiny, no longer dull, something bright that the whole world can see, something useful to God. This is what God loves to do. God loves to take messy, broken people and transform them into bright it's shiny, useful, new creations in Christ Jesus who do what then? Proclaim the power of God to the ends of the earth. That's what God loves to do. So I think this is why David ends this song of praise by proclaiming God's power to restore when he says this in verses 11 through 12. He says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. Think about the contrast here. The, the, the transformation that must take place to go from absolute depression, mourning, into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Sackcloth is the image of somebody who is mourning at a funeral. They would have sackcloth and ashes on. He says, you've taken that clothing from me and you have replaced it with gladness. He says that my glory, my life, my reputation would sing your praise and not be silent. He says, oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I don't know, again, where all of you are at this morning. So I don't know what place in your life you feel stuck in where you're like, I'm really struggling to praise God because I'm in this dark place. Here's what I know. God, God takes us from that dark place and moves us into a place of light by the work of his son Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. You see, when God turns mourning into dancing, when, when God removes the clothing of our sin sickness that reeks of despair and depression, what he does in those moments is he doesn't just then leave us there naked and ashamed and guilty. When he removes that clothing, he is simultaneously recovering us, restoring us, putting a brand new paint job on us. And it's called the clothing of gladness. And that gladness is the gladness of the resurrection. See, so what you and I look forward to is exactly that. The resurrection, and we sang about it so helpfully this morning. What God literally does in the message of the gospel is He literally turns a funeral into a wedding. Just like when He turned Good Friday into Easter morning. That's the picture of what God does for us when He restores us. Ultimately, at the end of the day, when we talk about the concept of being completely restored, completely healed from our old, broken, sinful place, that ultimate healing 
actually comes when God raises his loved ones from the dead, just like he raised Jesus from the dead. So this is the picture that we have in this text of restoration. It's the picture we have that actually motivates us to praise God for his resurrection and his restoration. If you're in a place right now where you're like, hey, I'm in a dark place. Life has not been easy. It has been hard. Can I just say that it's okay to be there? And I'm glad you're here. This is a good place for you to be. I don't know what God's timing is. And I think even if I put myself in the disciples' shoes back when Jesus was crucified and he died on Good Friday, I don't think the disciples knew that three days later the tomb was going to be empty. They lived in that sadness and that grief for a couple of days. They lived in that. In fact, if you think about it, they lived in it for longer than three days because I think even after the resurrection, they questioned, like, could this really have happened? Is this really true? I just want to take pressure off of you. Don't feel like you must walk out of this place dancing for joy. There is space and place in life for us to lament and to mourn. And if that's where you're at today, know you've got others around you who love you. But most of all, you have a God who will restore that broken place. He will restore that hurt. He will restore that place where death has tried to get a hold of you, where Satan has tried to come against you, where temptation is just fighting to claw its way into your life. God will restore that, and the proof you have is the empty tomb. So as I conclude, what I want to leave us with, um, uh, the words of another preacher. Um, Here's what this other preacher said in regards to Psalm 30. He said, hey, when we read Psalm 30 in light of the New Testament, what this psalm does is it celebrates the dedication of Jesus' own body on the cross. Okay, That's the way this other preacher came at this psalm. He really believes that this psalm is all about the resurrection all the way through. It's, it's a fascinating read, fascinating concept, and I think he's mostly right. He says, Jesus, at the end of the day, is the temple, right? So you would maybe see the subscription in your Bible, possibly under the heading that says this song was sung at the dedication of the temple. The problem with that subscription is this. David was not present when the temple was dedicated. David was present when his own home was built and was dedicated. So that's possible. It's also highly possible that David's just looking ahead and going, this is the song that's going to be sung when Jesus comes out of that grave. So there's lots of disagreement and agreement on that. Either way, I agree with this preacher when he says, Jesus is the temple. He is the temple. Jesus is the place where we meet God. When God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, God the Son sang for joy. And it's quite possible that this is the song that he sang. At the end of the day, this other preacher says, death was not the end for Jesus. And death is not the end for anyone who belongs to Jesus. There is 
truly joy in the morning. The light of God's presence meets us on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. We have not been raised bodily with Christ yet, true, but by faith his joy is ours today. And because of that truth, our hearts can soar high with the hope of the resurrection. You see, we praise God. We praise God as we find space at the foot of a bloody cross, as we look through the doorway of the empty tomb, and as we hold fast to this promise of heaven, this hope that we have. We praise God for his deliverance. We, we praise him for his compassion. We praise him as we confess sin and faith. We praise him for his help. We praise him for his restoration, both the restoration that has happened now and the restoration that will happen in the future. At the end of the day, this is why we praise God. This is how we praise God. We praise Him because He is the God of deliverance. We praise Him because He's the God of compassion. We praise Him because He's the God who, who, who helps us, right? We, we praise God because He is the God who will and has restored us. And we praise Him as we confess our sin and as we make a confession of faith and trust in Him. And all of that praise culminates, is made possible by the personal work of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. See, in Christ alone can we all proclaim together that Satan, sin, and death have been defeated at the cross and empty tomb. Donnie, in his lead-in to our gathering all throughout worship, had us read a few passages from 1 Corinthians 15 and had no clue that in my notes that I would say this. Because of the things that we learn in this psalm, we can all praise God together and we can proclaim together with the Apostle Paul because this is the song of the resurrection that death is swallowed up in victory. We can say, we can proclaim, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? We will not be taken down by those enemies because our enemies, our foes, have been eliminated by the power of the cross and the empty tomb. <coughs> there is no self-made sin-infected graves deep enough to hold on to you against the power of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. This is why we praise the God who delivers. This is why we praise the God of compassion. This is why we praise the God who helps us. This is why we praise the God who restores us. And we do that as we confess sin and confess faith in the one who has beaten Satan, sin, and death. Amen? I invite you to stand with me as we pray. Father, ask God as we close this morning that you would come and minister to us in a, in a special way as we receive communion as we spend time in prayer as we let the words of this psalm sink in to the unique places and spaces that our hearts and our minds are at this morning
ask God that you would come and do a, a healing work inside of us, a strengthening work. Lead us to the foot of that bloody cross and help us to find the strength and the healing and the encouragement to step forward praising you. Lord, we love you so much. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.